Hey there, welcome to LiveWire. I'm your host, Luke Burbank. This week on the show, we are talking to a true legend, filmmaker, actor, iconic, tiny mustache haver. John Waters is going to tell us about his first foray into writing fiction. Also, what it is like for him as a famously shocking, transgressive artist to now be recognized by children when he's in the airport. And lastly, why he is never going to leave Baltimore, where there are also some very famous bathrooms named for him. Then we're going to talk to Sasha LaPointe about how the TV show Twin Peaks impacted her life as a young native woman in the Pacific Northwest. But that is not all, public radio listener. No, we're going to wrap things up with a performance from one of our very favorite bands, Deep Sea Diver. So that's the plan. Big show this week. Stick around. It all gets started right after this. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke. Ooh, oh, you're doing your stretches. You're ready I am. to rock you know, and roll. This is, people don't think that this radio making is a physical activity, but I've got to get in the zone here. Let's do it. Uh, stretch. Yeah. Oh, let's go. Okay, good. We're all stretched out, ready to do this. Uh, are you ready for a little station location identification examination? Yavol. Okay, this is where I'm going to talk about a place in America where Livewire is on the radio. you got to try to figure out the place that I'm talking about. All right, this city is home to the first museum in America, playhouse, and also golf club, apparently, in the country. This is where these things happened first. Where's my hint? Is there another hint? I, I yes, have a suggestion, but I, I, I know, I think, where the oldest playhouse was, but I'm afraid to say it because it's the city of my birth, and I feel like maybe they're <laughs> making it up. But what's, what's, my, what's my hint? Well, I would say trust your instincts on this one, Elena. <gasps> I'll, give you, I'll give you another hint as if you need it. Uh, there's a roller derby league there called the Low Country High Rollers. The Low Country's got to be only one thing, Chucktown, South Carolina. Woo-hoo! Absolutely right, Charleston, <laughs> where we are on WSCI in Charleston, South Carolina. So shout out to uh, all the South Carolinians listening and even some of them co-hosting the show. That's right. <laughs> Best barbecue, according to me and me only. You come by that opinion, honestly. All right. Are you ready to uh, get into some live wire here? Heckfire, yeah. All right, take it away. <laughs> 
from PRX, it's Livewire. This week, filmmaker John Waters. I keep trying to dare myself. I'm the evil Knievel of uh, nutcases. And writer Sasha Lapointe. The work of healing is so much harder and way more worthwhile than self-medicating. With music from Deep Sea Diver and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now, the host of Livewire, Lou Burbank. Thank you so much, Elena Passarello. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in all over America, including out there in Charleston, South Carolina. Of course, uh, we have asked the Livewire listeners a question this week in honor of the fact that we're talking to John Waters, who has a couple of very interesting things in Baltimore (laughs) named for him. Yeah. (laughs) Which we're going to talk about. We asked the Livewire listeners, if you could have anything named after you, what would it be? We're going to hear those responses coming up in just a bit. First, though, it's time for the best news we heard all week. This, of course, is our little reminder at the top of the show that there is good news happening out there in the world. Sometimes you just have to look sort of hard for it, but that's what we're here to do. Elena, what's the best news that you heard all week? Well, now, Luke, I know you love baby cows uh, to the oh, point I where sure do. whenever I see any baby cow content on Instagram, I always send it your way. If my apartment <laughs> would allow me to have a baby cow, I would definitely probably have one as a pet. How do you feel about pigs? I am a fan. I stan pigs. Well, you're going to love this story then. It takes place in Union Township, New Jersey. And the human in the story is a man named Gilbert Amaya, who is a vet. He served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And to help him with his PTSD when he was home, he started taking care of animals and having some animals that live with him that help him. Uh, So not just an emotional support dog. Gilbert also has an emotional support pig in Union Township, New Jersey, <laughs> named Hamilton, who uh, I believe died in New Jersey. Alexander Hamilton did, if the musical is correct. But he goes by Hammy. Okay. So Hammy was a cute little piglet, just mm-hmm. a little bitty cute tiny thing. But now, six years later, he weighs 500 pounds. That'll happen. <laughs> they get big. And he uh, lives uh, both in the yard and the garage of Amaya's home. And Last month, there was a fire in the garage. A surge protector exploded and ignited Hammy's bed. And Uh. Hammy, who has open access to the outside, bailed. But he had been trained to open and close doors. I guess it's kind of a part of the relationship that he has with Gilbert. And so he shut the door to the garage, which isolated the fire and according to the fire department gave Gilbert another 15, 20 minutes to wake up, realize that there was smoke, get out of the house. Before he evacuated, he went into the garage to look for Hamilton and he realized that little Hammy, I mean little, not really, big Hammy, <laughs> big Hammy was already just chilling in the yard grazing. like <laughs> having, having already done his sort of good deed of protecting Mm-hmm. The home's owner a little bit longer. That's some real Charlotte's Web 
action. Mm-hmm, some pig. Like, you're going to come out in that yard and see some pig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Radiance. Oh, I love that book. That is amazing. Yeah, and nobody was hurt, thank goodness, but the house is kind of out of commission. And while it's being repaired, Gilbert is living with a friend and Hammy has uh, <laughs> kind of like a tent situation out in the yard. <laughs> yeah. But the, the landlord, Gilbert's landlord, has kind of fallen in love with Hammy and now she is helping take care of the pig <laughs> while <laughs> man and pig are separated. You've got to see these pictures of Hammy. He's got this beautiful kind of peach-colored fur. He is not small. Um, and he seems completely unfazed. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. The best news that I saw this week actually happened in Massachusetts in a small community called West Island Fairhaven, uh, which is described as being about 20 miles southeast of Fall River, if you're locating things out there in Massachusetts. And that is where um, a woman named Sophia Furtado was out on a DoorDash delivery recently. It's kind of later at night. It was like around 10 p.m., and it was a pizza delivery. And she pulls up to the house, and she sees somebody lying in the driveway. <gasps> and the person lying in the driveway was the person who'd ordered the pizza and the uh, owner of the home, a woman named Karen Hebert Sullivan, who, it turns out, we would learn later, had slipped somehow coming down the steps and had fallen and had hit her head and was unconscious. Mm. And Sophia Furtado had been through EMT training school some years previous, so she immediately assessed the situation. She called 911. She ran and got Karen's husband to come down. She instructed for him to get a blanket to keep her warm, something to put under Karen's head. Mm. She also could tell by the way that the blood was pooling how <gasps> long Karen had been on the ground in this particular situation. And so she was able to relay all of this really useful information to the 911 dispatchers. Oh, my gosh. And keep this woman alive as the ambulance was on the way. And doctors now say that this woman, uh, Karen Hebert Sullivan, probably had about 10 more minutes oh my gosh. before this was potentially going to be the end of her life. Instead, she was taken to the hospital. Um, she has had a lot of therapy and relearning things, but she's back to pretty much where she was. Oh, that's great. And she has become really good friends with this woman, Sophia Furtado, who saved her life. And oh. what's really cool is... Uh, DoorDash has now uh, given $1,000 to this woman, uh, Sophia, to sort of restart her EMT training if she so chooses. This is a weird detail of the story. She took, Sophia Furtado took the national EMT test uh -huh. and did not pass, which was why she stopped pursuing this particular career. She was a bit dispirited by that. Uh-huh. I mean, I feel like this should be like, you know, an honorary EMT yeah, degree. This is a time serve situation, I think. Uh, Absolutely. If, if like, <laughs> I feel like we're ready to, I would be fine with her responding to an emergency that I was a part of Same. just based on how incredibly composed she was. And uh, Karen just calls her her guardian angel. So an amazing story out there in Massachusetts of somebody just going above and beyond. Yeah, that's great. Two saving stories. That's great that's news. That's right. So there you go. People being saved or pigs being saved. That's the best <laughs> news that we heard this week. If you'd like to get even more good news in your life, you can head over to the Livewire podcast feed where you can listen to our podcast. It's called The Best News Podcast. And it's just about positive stories that we're seeing in the week. So please do go check that out. 
All right, let's welcome our first guest over to the show. John Waters is a writer, film director, actor, and visual artist. He's known for his films, including Hairspray, Pink Flamingos, Serial Mom, lots of others. Uh, he's also the author of the national bestsellers Role Models, Carsick, and Mr. Know-It-All. His latest book is Liar Mouth. Just a heads up before we get to it, this conversation does reference a sexual activity, so bear that in mind. And now, without further ado, it gives me very great pleasure to welcome John Waters to Livewire. Thank you. Thanks. My goodness. This is a real thrill for me and Elena, I'll tell you. <laughs> um, I want to talk about this novel of yours, Liar Mouth. This is your, you've written books before, but they've been in the memoir category. This is your first novel. Why did you finally decide to tackle that form? Well, I had a taste of it when I wrote my book, Carsick, when I hitchhiked across the country by myself when I was 66. And the first two-thirds of the book were I imagined the worst rides I could get and the best rides, which were fiction. <laughs> right. And then I wrote what really happened. So I had a taste for it with that. But that's much easier to write if you are one of the characters while you're hitchhiking. So I just, I love novels. I think it's, uh, I, I always read them. So I just wanted to try things I haven't done. The same way I took LSD when I was 70 to see what it would be like. I hitchhiked when I was 66 across the country. I keep trying to dare myself. I'm the evil Knievel of uh, <laughs> nutcases, right? <laughs> Do you feel like it's working? I mean, you sound, I don't know if you are comfortable with us stating your age, but let's say you're north of 70. But you I'm sound 76, which you can't be middle-aged. I'm not going to be 152 no matter how well <laughs> <No>. things go. <laughs> I am in that. the winter of my years, not even the autumn, which is really shocking. But I'm going to beat death, and I wrote how I was going to do that in my last book. So I'm not, I'm not afraid. I'm going to beat death. Nobody can kill this ego. <laughs> but do you, think, do you think all of this sort of experimentation in what phase some would say is later life, do you think that's having the desired effect of keeping you kind of young and healthy and active? Well, I'm, I've just continued to work. I'm afraid if I ever retired, I'd drop dead. But uh, I don't believe in any religion, but I like to believe in the resurrection. But I just want to know, what do you wear? I mean, are you <laughs> nude? I hope if everybody in the world came back nude, that would be really bad. I hope pets don't come too. Or where are you going to get an apartment? You think it's a problem now. <laughs> I feel like that's a premise for a John Waters film. There is some well, sort of be. resurrection. The resurrection. Yeah, maybe <laughs> Mel Gibson can produce it. <laughs> Um, let's talk about the main character in this book, Liarmouth, Marcia Sprinkle. Uh, is there a person who inspired her? No, I did have a friend that told me once his girlfriend that he had broken up was used to steal suitcases in airports. That was the only thing. That's all you need. One sentence, one little thing. You think, oh, or one thing you overhear. None of the rest was really inspired by anything true. I was just in the airport the other day and I was looking at all those like forlorn suitcases that had been like misdelivered and there's no one guarding them. And I had the thought, how are those not being stolen more regularly? Nobody's guarding any suitcases. And you eat, the reason I got a lot of ideas is because I have been, I once was with a friend and she picked up her suitcase and we started walking up and the guy started chasing it. And he had the exact same suitcase. Mm. And all you have to say is, oh, I'm sorry. I know people that have taken suitcases home and then realized it wasn't theirs and then took it back. And the other person took it back too. But uh, they don't check anymore. When I was younger, they always had someone that looked mm -hmm. at the tag mm -hmm. of your suitcase and looked at the thing. I haven't been in an airport where they do that. It's it's odd because security went much stronger in every other way after 9-11, mm -hmm. and so they got rid of that. Right. So you can't, you can't bomb the planes, but you can get your suitcase stolen. This is Livewire Radio. We're talking to the great John Waters. He's got a new novel out called Liar Mouth. 
Um, there is a family that makes a quick appearance in this book, and they're wearing matching T-shirts. And uh, what's written on the T-shirts, we can't really say on public radio, but it's uh, sexual and it's provocative. And I was wondering, do you like, uh, I feel like we're trying to do too much of our communicating as a society by way of our T-shirts. Do you share that opinion? Well, I hate, t I don't ever wear a T-shirt that has a label on it that you can read or any slogan of any kind. But in Provincetown, I, I did like to see big, grumpy women with T-shirts on that said, I got issues. That made me laugh. <laughs> and, and another one I saw was a man alone, and his T-shirt said, I eat, and it was something to do that rhymes with lass. And at the same time, I thought, who would just be by yourself, come to Provincetown and look in the mirror and say, well, this will be perfect for Provincetown. You know, he saved it. And then put it on and walked out by himself in the middle of the day. And families were, you know, covering their children's eyes. Eight-year-old, can a four-year-old can read that. <laughs> so I just thought, well, what is he thinking? Did, did that help? Did somebody say, oh, okay, come on over. I just <laughs> couldn't imagine the response, or I do too. Yeah. And that's kind of what this book is about. Right. <laughs> um, we've got to take a quick break here on Livewire, but when we come back, uh, I want to talk to John Waters about uh, his filmmaking career and uh, his relationship with the bathrooms at the Baltimore Museum of Art and a bunch of other interesting stuff. When we return here on Livewire, stay with us. Hey, Elena. Hey, Luke, I didn't see you there. It's that time of year again. My seasonal allergies are back. Oh, congratulations. But also, it's our spring member drive, which is happening right now through May 17th. Oh, I like that much more than seasonal allergies. Yeah, if you are not yet a member of Livewire's League of Extraordinary Listeners, well, now is the time to do it. Why? Well, because this League of Extraordinary Listeners uh, is what keeps the lights on over at Livewire Inc., uh, which is definitely not the association that we are part of. I'm probably a 501c3. They don't let me near any of the paperwork mm -hmm. or bookkeeping, and it's really better that way. Yes. Point is, we we are only able to keep doing this show because of support from our members, and we would love it if you could join us in that right now. Plus, there are all kinds of sweet perks, including uh, special discounted tickets to live recordings, on-air shout-outs, exclusive content, uh, and, Elena, uh, one more thing that, of course, we would not be a self-respecting public radio show if we didn't offer this. If we didn't offer the most iconic public radio swag of all time, a tote bag. True iconic status. Yeah, but it's not just any tote bag. This is like a really good tote bag. It's got a second zipper, an internal zipper. Yes, whatever you want to put in the tote bag, that's your business, okay? What we're mm -hmm. here to talk about is you keeping LiveWire going. So head on over to LiveWireRadio.org to see the various member levels. It does not matter how much you are giving every month to LiveWire. It just matters that you do it because it goes a long way for us. So thank you. Vacations, weddings, birthdays, and reunions. Oh, my. There's so much going on. Get the most out of your spring plans by stocking up on pre-alcohol now. Zbiotics pre-alcohol probiotic drink is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic. It was invented by PhD scientists to tackle rough mornings after drinking. Here's how it works. When you drink, alcohol gets converted into a toxic byproduct in the gut. It's this byproduct, not dehydration, that's to blame for your rough next day. Zbiotics produces an enzyme to break this byproduct down. 
Just remember to make ZBiotics your first drink of the night, drink responsibly, and you'll feel your best tomorrow. Go to zbiotics.com slash livewire to get 15% off your first order when you use livewire at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money-back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember to head to zbiotics.com slash livewire and use the code livewire at checkout for 15% off. Thank you to ZBiotics for sponsoring this episode and our good times. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We are talking to filmmaker, actor, artist, writer John Waters, who has a new novel out titled Liar Mouth. Um, your filmmaking, particularly a lot of your early stuff, is often described as transgressive or employing sort of intentionally bad taste. But I was wondering, do you think it's bad taste or is it just your taste? Well, I think what bad taste is over, even I always said Trump ruined bad taste um, because it's not even fun anymore. His bad taste wasn't fun or anything. So uh, to me, I don't know that they were bad taste. They were trying to alter your perceptions of any kind of taste at all. Um, and when we made Pink Flamingos, for instance, all that 50s furniture was a nickel in a thrift shop. Now it's called you know, mid-century and is very collectible. Right. And uh, the parents, my parents' antique furniture that they left me that was one time worth a fortune is worthless now. So taste changes, and but both at some point were extreme to have something that was so old and or something that was freshly not new. So mm -hmm. it, 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 it's interesting what becomes in and out of fashion, and I think taste is what I've always written about. My audience is smart. They have a good sense of humor about themselves, but they're always a little bit angry, but they use that anger for humor, and that's what makes everybody get along so well, and that's why I've lasted this long doing this for 50 years. I wanted to ask about uh, somebody who was really instrumental to your career, and that would be Divine. I just watched yeah. this documentary about Divine, uh, a little while ago. I I'm curious, uh, you were childhood friends uh, in the suburbs of Baltimore. I mean, do you think your career would have ended up the way it's ended up had you and Divine not crossed paths? Well, I think I would have made movies and I think I would have found a star of sorts that was extreme. But uh, And I didn't really meet Divine until we were teenagers because his family uh, moved up the street. And I recently went by to where his house was and it's gone. Somebody bought it and tore it down and built something oh, no. else, which really kind of bothered me, uh, you know, that it was just gone. And uh, yes, I think I would have made movies. Would I have found another person that was, let's say, at that time a drag queen, which Divine certainly was. Divine was not trans. He never wanted to be a woman. He didn't go and drag except when he was paid to do it, really. Mm. Uh, would I, I don't know. You can never say that. Uh, my first movie starred Malcolm Soule, who was a very, very famous, in, uh, nationally famous beatnik that lived in Baltimore. And she had maroon hair and were all really extreme punk makeup like 30 years before there was punk. She was the queen of the beatnik. She was in Life magazine. And she was the star of my first movie. Divine was scared of her. So, um, <laughs> so I would have found somebody alarming, yeah. <laughs> uh, what were your aspirations in those days, in the late 60s and 70s in Baltimore, just kind of making these these films that were really unlike anything anyone had seen. It was to scare hippies. And basically <laughs> what, what I still do is make fun of the rules of the outsider community I live in. I might have made fun with hippies, but that's who came to see Multiple Maniacs. I might have made fun of 
liberals, but that's certainly who comes see me speak. I don't have a lot of people yelling, lock her up. <laughs> Speaking of Baltimore, uh, you're sort of famously associated with that city, and, and I believe we're speaking to you in Baltimore today. Um, yeah. What is it about Baltimore that has kept you there and engaged all these years when you could live in L.A. or New York or San Francisco or anywhere else you choose? Because I could never escape show business if I lived in there. I'd never meet people that weren't in the arts. I have friends here that are truck drivers. I have friends here that are florists. I have people here that are criminals. I, I need to meet people that have different lives. And my oldest friends live here. And I don't trust anybody that doesn't have old friends. And <laughs> your real old friends could care less if you got a good review or made money that week mm. or anything. So, uh, And also the people here have a good sense of humor, and that is very, very important to me. And we can make fun of Baltimore. You can't. We have a, a, a segment on our show. It's called The Best News We Heard All Week. And I don't know, a few months ago, I think Elena's best news story involved the bathrooms at the Baltimore Museum of Art. Oh, yeah. Correct? What's the, what's the story with that? Well, I gave my entire art collection, which is a 40-year collection. It's valuable, and it's pretty good. I'm a good art collector. But I gave it all to the Baltimore Museum after I die. And they said, oh, we're going to name this rotunda after you. And I said, that's fine, but I want you to name the bathrooms after <laughs> me. And they said, oh, that's real funny. I said, no, <laughs> I'm serious. It's a deal breaker. That's what I want. So they actually did, and they made it the first non-gender bathroom in, a, in the museum. And I had Elizabeth Coffey, who is a trans actress that was in Pink Flamingos. And she came down, and this was 50 years later. She's now is an activist for senior citizen trans rights. Wow. And she cut Whoa. the ribbon and took the first pee. She christened it <laughs> in, front of, <laughs> in front of all the media. It was like the most amazing turnout, public officials. It was hilarious. It was really good. And it was a ser it was a serious subject, but we had fun with it. So we weren't preaching, and uh, and 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 I've already seen things on the internet. I can't wait to get to that John Waters bathroom. So I thought, oh God, who knows what'll go on in there? <laughs> How did you end up on The Simpsons? I was flipping the channels the other day, and I saw what is arguably one of the great Simpsons episodes starring you. Thank you. That was a long time ago. I've done a lot of voiceover work. I do Disney cartoons now. Um, they asked me to do it, and I had a great time doing that show. And, I, of course, now people, kids used to always come up to me in airports, recognize me for that. But l later I was in the Alvin the Chipmunk uh -huh. movie. Wait, were you so in the children Squeakle? come up to me. Or were you in the original? I was, I, yes, I was in, uh, what was Chip that one called? It was the Christmas movie with the Chipettes, yeah. And uh, I have a scene with Alvin in it, and they later changed it and put Alvin saying, don't tell me I saw Pink Flamingos, which I couldn't believe they put that in a children's movie. <laughs> what, I, I mean, what? What's it feel like to you to be, you know, recognized in an airport by a child because of your work in some major film production and to be so sort of beloved and embraced widely when your start in doing this in filmmaking anyway was it with such an outsider community and was so not embraced widely? Well, I think I've been crossing over. I would like to do other things. And when I'm in the subway in New York, I'm only recognized for being in the Chucky movie. <laughs> <laughs> Is this child's play? No, I was in uh, Seed of Chucky. Perdone moi. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, the one that sounds dirtier, the dirtier, <laughs> gayer Chucky. Although the new Chucky's pretty gay, but the one on TV. But uh, it depends. I want to reach everybody in a way. I'm not a separatist. So I'm thinking, well, children can't see Pink Flamingos, even though children love Divine. They were never scared of Divine. They thought he was a clown. They, they weren't scared mm. of divine. Hippies were, but they weren't. Uh, so uh, I, I'm just trying to tr cross over to different audiences.
is there a certain freedom? You have this novel that's out, Liar Mouth. Is there a certain freedom in writing a novel? Um, because you can imagine a scenario and then just write it and it exists as opposed to trying to make a film about it yes. where you have to then think about how this is going to show up on the big screen. Yeah, I don't have to worry about the budget. I don't have to worry about the cost of special effects. And to be honest, I don't have to worry about the MPAA rating. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I mean, you'd be happy if they burned your book. It would get so much publicity. Mm -hmm. now. No, they wouldn't be that stupid to do that. Well, they might because <laughs> yeah. they're burning books again everywhere. Yeah. And then we'll have the don't say straight law. That's the one I want to pass. <laughs> no line <laughs> dancing or mention of, you know, Mel Gibson before age of four years old without being able to make up their own minds. Speaking of the, the novel, though, and, and the difference between a novel and, and a film, is there any thought about adapting Liarmouth uh, into being a film? Well, there has been interest already, my agent said. So I love that idea because whoever wanted to make the movie would have to buy the movie rights from me, which is funny. And then uh, they'd maybe have, uh, maybe hope to hire me to direct it. So those that there's one step that would be an extra paycheck than usually I get from making a movie. So um, I hope so. That'd be great. Oh, this movie, though... Would probably be NC-17, and the special effects <laughs> budget would be pretty high because there's a lot of strange things that happen with trampoline fanatics. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, John Waters, it's been such a pleasure uh, finally getting to talk to you. We've been fans uh, forever. And, and if, if, if you want to hear some good music, I would highly recommend you check out the CD, A Date with John Waters, which I was before we started recording, I was showing you this John Prine tattoo that I got. And I really got into John Prine because of the CD that you made that had an Iris Dement and John Prine song on it. So thanks for that. Well, sure. Thank you. You were a little late coming to John Prine because he's been around a long I time. I know. I was too. But uh, he's really great. And Iris Dement is so great mm -hmm. too. I mean, yeah. nobody can wear a house dress like her. <laughs> <laughs> well, John Waters, thank you again for coming on Livewire. We appreciate it. All right. It. Thank you for having me. That was John Waters right here on Livewire. There was a funny moment, Elena, before we started recording, where there was these emails that were coming in and dinging, and it was clear <laughs> that it was a bit frustrating to John, but he wasn't totally clear on how to fix it. That just proves that like, if you want to be a great artist, don't pay attention to things like how your email works. Like, exactly. ju just like let it go, find mm -hmm. people to do it. Delegate it. Delegate. A team of people swept into that room in Baltimore. That's right. Fixed the situation. I believe one so. of them asked something like, um, <laughs> do you know how to turn off your notifications? And he said, I don't know what that is. It was as if you had asked him, can you levitate? Yeah. <laughs> like it was a completely ludicrous concept. <laughs> John's latest book is Liar Mouth. Uh, go check it out right now. Hey, special thanks this episode to Shona Kester of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Richard Swift of Portland, Oregon. Shona and Richard are part of the Livewire member community, and they are generously supporting the show with a donation each month. And we're very thankful for that because it's genuinely how we're able to keep doing Livewire every week. So a big thanks to Shona and Richard for keeping the show going. This is Livewire. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. We love to ask Livewire listeners a question each week in honor of the fact that those bathrooms at that art museum in Baltimore are named for John Waters now. We wanted to know from the Livewire listeners, if you could have anything named after you, what would it be? 
Elena has been collecting up those responses. What are you seeing? Well, this one was submitted anonymously. Maybe mm-hmm. you could see why. The anonymous figure would like <laughs> their name to be attached to, quote, a digestive disorder that causes the afflicted to fart confetti, but is otherwise harmless. <laughs> so they want, so they're not only do they want to be named for this thing, but they're also inventing this thing. Yeah, yeah. So not any any mm-hmm. uh, medical ailment, but, but you know, right. if you had a confetti tooting yeah. disorder, I guess you could just wear skirts all the time. I, I do think that would be the most festive yeah, of like those kinds of situations. And then they would just be called the Kevin or something. Yeah. Whatever this anonymous person. It's interesting when someone, I guess, discovers a medical ailment, but then it will forever bear their name. Like, oh, I've got uh-huh. Elena's disease, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, I think that one would be dancing across the stage to live wire that That's if right. somebody was suddenly compelled to boogie on down as they were coming because that's of course how we start our live shows yeah. the band plays you out i think of that as the elena nice as a terpsichorean affliction exactly mm. if only i knew what that word <laughs> just dance Oh, nice. Uh, what's something else that uh, our listeners would like to have named after them? I love this one from Philip. Philip would like to be the namesake of the complimentary breadsticks or chips and salsa at a good local restaurant. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. Is this a joke? Is no. this a meta joke that the person's name is Philip? Because my problem is I fill up on the breadsticks. <laughs> And the chips, I am incapable of controlling myself when there are like endless carbs being brought to my table before the real food shows up. So technically, it's already been named after Philip. That's the yes. Philip bowl. Don't yeah. fill up. Don't fill up. Don't fill up on those unlimited breadsticks. <laughs> What's another thing somebody wants named after them? Oh, how about this one from Tracy? Tracy would like to be the namesake of the program that wipes out all student debt. Oh, yeah. I've saved by the Tracy. That mm-hmm. oh, that would be that would be a high honor. I mean, considering what an absolutely debilitating financial situation student loan debt is in this country, to be the person whose name is associated with remedying that mm-hmm. would be a high honor. Do you know, by the way, what word is actually based on someone's name? Mesmerizing. What? There's a there was a guy named like Joseph Mesmer, and I think he was some kind of a mentalist or magician or hypnotist. Mesmerizing was his act. And so now when we say mesmerizing, we are remembering him, even if we didn't know him in the first place. <laughs> that, I'm mesmerized by that information. <laughs> I would have never known that. All right. Thank you to everyone who sent in responses to our listener question. We've got another question for next week's show, which we're going to present at the end of today's episode. So stick around for that. In the meantime, our next guest's writing has appeared in the Rumpus Literary Journal and lots of other places. Publishers Weekly called her latest book Red Paint, the ancestral autobiography of a Coast Salish punk, a stirring debut. While Time Magazine calls it absorbing, I am calling it a riveting story of someone on a journey to connect their past, present, and future. Let's take a listen to this. It's a conversation we recorded with Sasha Lapointe. We recorded this live at the Holt Center for the Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon, last month. Sasha, welcome to Livewire. Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks for being here. This is a a really incredible book. I want to start by talking about um, your sort of traditional name, Taksha Blue, which Mm -hmm. is 
uh, on the on the cover of the book, and I know was your great grandmother's name. Mm-hmm. What does that name mean, and what did it mean to you to to carry it with you in your life? Yeah, so much. Like I think in one of the early chapters, naming ceremony, I talk about what it's like to be gifted a Skagit name. So traditionally in our Coast Salish culture, names have to be gifted to you. And my great grandmother decided to gift me her Skagit name. So I became Taksha Blue number two, which was so intense because who my great grandmother was as um, a cultural revitalization activist. She kind of single-handedly saved the Lashootsi language from extinction. She was such a a badass. (laughs) So growing up, I'd always hear, oh, you're Taksha Blue number two, and what what hard shoes to fill? And I was like, oh gosh. (laughs) Did that feel like pressure as a young person? It did. It did. Yeah. But in a good way. Um, Your young life sounds like it was filled with a lot of love within your immediate family, but also with a lot of Um, you know, trauma and displacement. Your family was living in a church for a while. There's a a part of the book where uh, you talk about sort of getting dropped off by the school bus Mm -hmm. and knowing that you're living in this church and kind of walking near it, but then doing that thing that kids do, really probably just people in general do when they feel shame, which is taking your time, hoping the bus leaves so you can then go into this place that you're living. What did it feel like for you to have a childhood that was sort of so disconnected at times? You know, um, you're bringing up a moment that I can remember so visually and so viscerally, doing the the thing where I'd pretend to tie my shoes <laughs> and wait for the other kids in my grade to kind of disappear, because I didn't want anybody to know that I was actually walking across the parking lot into the church, which was my home. You know, like that was such a hard thing. And I think that sort of displacement and that feeling of like not being grounded or home, you know, was a constant in my early childhood. And yes, it was hard. But one thing that really soothed me, and I think that I really rooted in, was a story that my great-grandmother told me growing up where she was also really nomadic as a Coast Salish woman. Oh, you mean Taksha Blue One? Taksha Blue One. The, the yeah, OG. The OG. The OG, <laughs> Yes. Her and her parents also had a very nomadic life growing up on the Skagit River. She would tell me these stories about having to pick up everything, literally get in the canoe and go up the river to search for work. Her parents were, you know, either doing the berry picking during the summer seasons and she would say we'd often like stay in different places, but her mother had a rolled up piece of linoleum and would lay it down wherever they were. Sometimes it was on a riverbank. Sometimes it was in, you know, one-room shack with no paint and dirt floors. But she would say that her mother would roll out the linoleum Mm. and create home wherever they were. Mm. When she told me that story, I was kind of like, oh, that's such a bummer. And she was like, no. Mm. My mom knew how to make make us feel that we had a home all the time. Wow. We're talking to Sasha LaPointe. Her book is Red Paint, the Ancestral Autobiography of a Coast Salish Punk, here on Livewire at the Holt Center in Eugene. Um, you also write in the book about your love uh, for the show Twin Peaks, which yes. <laughs> was set in the part of the Pacific Northwest, kind of roughly where you grew up and had at least one Native character, even if there was some stereotypes in play. Oh, yeah. Um, and then it also 
kind of, in a way, pushed you in the direction of the, the person you ended up marrying mm-hmm. because of their resemblance to what? Um, Agent Cooper? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Let's talk about that a little bit. What did you love so much about Twin Peaks? Um, I think as a child, it was really exciting for me to see Coast Salish representation even at all, like native representation. The shows I loved, the music I loved, there was sort of this absence of native characters and this absence of native identity in general. And so when I saw Twin Peaks and saw Deputy Hawk, Hawk. (laughs) I mean, with his turquoise earring and a ponytail and he was a tracker, I was like, come on. But, you know, my young self was excited to be like, oh, this is set in basically my backyard. I'm seeing things that resemble home. You know, the logging trucks, the deep woods, the waterway. Like, it was really comforting to be like, oh, people, that visibility was important to me. And then, of course, Agent Cooper. How could you not love him? He's magical. (laughs) Um, We are recording uh, this here this week in Eugene, Oregon, but not too far up I-5 is the city of Olympia, Washington, which is kind of the birthplace of what's described as the riot girl uh, music scene. The band Bikini Kill is referenced frequently in this book. I'm curious, why did that music speak to you so much um, in your young life, um, and and what was its importance? Yeah, I can remember, um, I love this question because I'm currently working on a collection of essays, and one of them has to deal with this moment exactly. I remember being 13 years old. I grew up, you know, in the middle of the woods on the Swinomish Reservation, far away, kind of removed from Seattle and the music scene and all of the things that were happening there. But I remember listening to the, like, college radio station, the alternative radio station, as this little 13-year-old kid. And it was the first time I heard Bikini Kill's song, White Boy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I would... Uh, steal my brother's boombox and drag it into the bathroom and kind of lock myself in and just listen to this radio station and make really bad mixtapes. And I was, you know, I was like... Did you get get those tapes going where you would hear the beginning and end of what the DJ was saying? Yes. Because you could never really time it perfectly, so there'd be like a... I had like repeat songs. I had like, I cut songs off. They were the worst mixtapes ever. But that was the first time I remember hearing Bikini Kill and... It really shook me to my core because I was hearing like a young woman sing about the aftermath of sexual assault and in such a powerful way, in such a way that just commanded attention. And I'd never heard anything like that in my entire life. Mm -hmm. And as an assault survivor, it really spoke to me. And I was like, I want that. I want to find that. I want to be part of that. I want to be close to that. And Bikini Kill became one of my favorite bands of all time. We're talking to Sasha LaPointe about her new book, Red Paint, here on Livewire this week. Um, Another uh, event that you write about in the book that was very traumatic um, was that you had a miscarriage. And that's something that is traumatic for anyone and people, I would imagine, um, deal with their grief in different ways. The way that you write in the book that you did was you went to the Skagit River, the very, very cold Skagit River, and entered the river. Um, I'm wondering why why you did that and, and what that felt like for you, and did it have the healing effect that you were seeking? It did. Um... You know, after I went out to the river, and I remember just asking, it was, you know, two of my best friends that drove me out there in Skagit Valley, past Cedra Woolley on the old Skagit Highway, and we just kept driving and driving and driving until finally 
I, and I didn't have a plan. I didn't know where I was going. I was just like, I know that I need to be in this river. And we pulled off on the side of the road and I found an old boat launch. And I was like, this works, this will be perfect. And I got in the river and you know, did my ritual, did my sort of personal healing ceremony. And a couple days later, I was talking to my mom and I told her where I was. I was like, yeah, we were out by Hamilton, past Cedra Woolley, whatever. And she said, oh my gosh, if you would have gone to the next mile marker, there's a creek that breaks off from the river and that's where our ancestors gathered red paint, like the clay, like it was a sacred site and I had no idea. And so if you're asking me if I found what I was looking for, I did. Speaking of, I mean, the title of the book is Red Paint, and this red paint, it, it sort of features prominently in the narrative of this book. Can you, for, for people that would be unfamiliar, describe culturally why this is so significant to your family and to your people? Yeah, um, as a Coast Salish person, um, we have longhouse ceremonies, and in our longhouse ceremonies, there are different dancers who wear different paint, and I come from a lineage who specifically wears red paint. And I remember um, being in the longhouse as a child and asking my mom, what does this paint mean? What does this paint mean? And she told me that the red paint meant we were the medicine workers. We were the healers. And so whatever spiritual work that was happening in the longhouse, when the red paint dancers came out to dance around the fire, they were healing. Yeah. And that was the same paint that was that was sort of taken from just down the down the river on the yes. Skagit. And you had no idea at that time. I had time. no idea. Wow. When my mom told me, I was floored. And my mom kind of just nodded and was like, yeah, of course you ended up right there. That's where wow. you were supposed to be. Mm-hmm. One of the things that you write in this book is that healing is different than self-medicating. What do you mean by that exactly? I think that for a long time in my teenagehood and early 20s, I wasn't necessarily facing the things that I'd experienced around sexual violence and trauma, generational trauma, historical trauma as a Native person, and also experienced trauma, like lived trauma. And I wasn't really confronting that and dealing with it in a good way. Rather, I was sort of putting it to sleep and numbing it, going to punk shows and being wild. And when I finally started to confront it and be like, oh, girl, you need some more tools to like deal with this. Like the work of healing is so much harder and way more worthwhile than self-medicating. You can put things to sleep all the time, but to really work through them, you have to be present. Yeah, that I think really sums up the message of this book really perfectly. The book is Red Paint. Sasha LaPointe, thank you so much for coming on Livewire. That was Sasha LaPointe, recorded at the Holt Center for Performing Arts in Eugene, Oregon last month. Sasha's book, Red Paint, the Ancestral Autobiography of a Coast Salish Punk, is available now. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarella. We have to take a very quick break, but don't go anywhere because we will be back with much more Livewire. Livewire is thrilled to be partnering with Portland's own Portal Tea this season. Formerly known as Tea Chai Tay, Portal Tea is the premier tea company in the Pacific Northwest. They make one-of-a-kind handcrafted tea blends like cinnamon churro chai and blueberry cream earl grey. Use the code LIVEWIRE, all lowercase, 
for 20% off at portalt.co. Welcome back to Livewire from PRX. I'm Luke Burbank here with Elena Passarello. All right, our musical guest this hour is a Seattle rock band that has received acclaim for their power and presence and larger-than-life guitar hooks. Um, Also a good follow on Twitter, I learned when I started following them on Twitter. Anyway, their third full-length album, Impossible Weight, is out now. Take a listen to this. It's Deep Sea Diver performing in front of a live audience at Revolution Hall recorded in Portland, Oregon back in December. Can't say 
Thank you. Patty King, everybody. Elliot Jackson. Thank you, guys. That was Deep Sea Diver right here on Livewire, recorded at Revolution Hall here in Portland, Oregon. Their latest album, Impossible Weight, is out now. All right, before we get out of here, a little preview of next week's show. We are going to be talking about how to get through hard stuff, but the show is not going to be a bummer, I promise. It's just useful advice. Like, uh, maybe you're having some trouble in the romance department. How about using uh, witchcraft? That's what Alyssa Washuda did. She writes about it in her book of essays, White Magic. Then Anna Sale is going to stop by. She literally hosts a podcast about topics that are difficult to confront. It's called Death, Sex, and Money. And she's got a book out now based on the podcast called Let's Talk About Hard Things. Um, And she really makes a pretty compelling case for why we should talk about tough stuff. Then we're going to hear some music from indie legend Juliana Hatfield, who had to learn computer things to record her latest album at home because there was a pandemic. That was hard for her, but she did it. And we're going to hear the results of that on the show next week. And as always, we are going to be looking to get your answers to our listener question. Elena, what are we asking the listeners for next week's show? Tell us about a trivial disagreement that you can never seem to resolve. Ooh. Man, those are the ones. <laughs> those are the ones that I'm just relitigating in my head for years. It's never anything big. It's yeah. like something so minor that just is stuck in my craw for whatever reason. Like whether or not Leonardo DiCaprio could have fit on that door. Like, a lot of people disagree over that. See, that's the exact kind of thing we'd like to hear from you. <laughs> if you want to send in your submission, you can do it on Twitter or Facebook. We are at Livewire Radio. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the show. A huge thanks to our guests, John Waters, Sasha LaPointe, and Deep Sea Diver. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Heather D. Michelle is our executive director. Tim Harkins is our development and marketing director. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sepchenko. And our assistant editor is Trey Hester. Our house band is Ethan Fox Tucker, Sam Tucker, A.L. Alves, and A. Walker Spring, who also composes our music. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the State of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. This week, we'd like to thank members Shona Kester of Minneapolis, Minnesota, and Richard Swift of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. Livewire. When we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait. Actually, no. Sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review 
Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast.